Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We have had uh, quite a morning with different things going on, so we can have a few moments to uh, compose ourselves, focus our attention on the Word, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and uh, be thankful that the heating repairman has come and gone, and the heater is on, so it won't be long before we're warm. Walking in here this morning, it gave me flashbacks of sitting in Baraka Church, so that'll just give you an idea of how cold they keep it in the auditorium there. Not quite 59 degrees, but almost. I know, I know women who kept their mink coats there all year round, even in the summer, just because Pastor Theme likes to keep it cold so he doesn't uh, uh, feel warm while he's up there teaching. I appreciate that. Anyway. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful privilege of freedom that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as citizens and inhabitants of this nation, we pray that you would continue to give us this freedom that we enjoy to worship together, to meet together, to freely study your word. We pray that you would preserve and protect this nation. We pray, especially during this time of international crisis, this time of war against terrorism and uh, apparent upcoming war against Iraq, we pray that you would give our leaders wisdom, that they would be able to sift through all of the intelligence data uh, accurately, that they would discover that which they need to discover in order to protect us. Father, we know ultimately our security resides in you, and that the security and the blessing, your blessing on this nation is ultimately related to the impact of growing believers in this country. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this congregation, this church, that we might be able to continue to be a steadfast witness for grace and for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area and throughout the world. We pray now this morning that we would be responsive to the teaching of your word, be able to clearly understand what your word says, that we may apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One other announcement, um, Fred, when are you leaving? End of the week, Fred, Fred's been called up to active duty with the Navy, and he's going down to Portsmouth, Virginia before the end of the week, so you can add him to your prayer list. We now have uh, 
three men in the local congregation that have been uh, either called up to active duty or sent over to Kuwait. So we need to continue to pray for them while they are gone. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as I have been doing the last uh, two or three lessons, I'm going to go back and review the context. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 forms... uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 forms one section in this epistle, and if you do not interpret the individual paragraphs within these three chapters in light of the overall context of those three chapters and the point that Paul is making in these three chapters, then you will be prone to misinterpretation. And when there is misinterpretation, the consequence of that is always misapplication. So we have to remember, especially in light of what some of the things that I'm going to hit today in verses 14 and following, we need to keep in mind what Paul has already said. In chapter 8, the issue is eating or not eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. And the point that Paul makes is that mature believers should have a certain level of sensitivity to those who are immature or weak believers who haven't been taught yet, who may have a problem with certain things that are legitimate activities for believers to engage in. But for those weak believers to engage in those activities would violate their conscience. Now, there's a tendency to say, well, why is that important? But Paul makes a clear point that no one, not even himself, The highest authority in the early church, not even Paul himself, has the right to force anyone to violate their conscience. Now, the principle that underlies this is that the the conscience is the guard of the soul, and the conscience operates on certain norms and standards that are in the soul, and even when those norms and standards may not be biblically correct, to set the precedent of rationalization and and violating those standards uh, has dangerous consequences for and sets a dangerous precedent for the future so that even if the norms and standards aren't correct when you rationalize that and you begin to violate that it begins to harden the conscience so that the next time you have a choice between right and wrong it's easier for you to rationalize the wrong rather than listen to your conscience and eventually when the conscience is straightened out with doctrine then it just becomes easier for you to rationalize sin. So Paul makes the point that no one, not even himself, has the right to force anyone to go against their conscience. Now, the issue here isn't simply doing something and having somebody observe you. But the point is, because there's always somebody who can observe you and take offense, you you take it the wrong way, use something you do legitimately to rationalize their own illegitimate behavior. The point here is much more active than that and has the idea of offering someone, uh, encouraging someone to do something, offering them something that would cause them to stumble, that would cause them to have major problems in the spiritual life, that we are not to seduce someone to go against their, their conscience. Now, the underlying principle here that was developed historically is crucial to understanding the principle of freedom. The point that Paul makes is if the apostles themselves, who represent the highest authority in the church, 
did not have the authority to cause someone to violate their own conscience, then no lesser authority has the right to force someone to violate their conscience. And by lesser authority, historically the application was made by the Puritans to a national government. And the point that they understood was that freedom of conscience here, if freedom of conscience can't be violated by an apostle, then it certainly can't be violated by anyone else. And that means that freedom of conscience derives not from apostolic authority. It doesn't derive from the church. That freedom of conscience and all freedom derives directly from God. Therefore, the freedoms that we have are not ours because the government grants them to us. They are ours because God has bequeathed them to the human race. This was the principle our founding fathers understood. This is what lies in the Declaration of Independence, even though it is framed in, in enlightenment language that this, our Creator has given us certain unalienable rights. It is a recognition that freedom doesn't come from government, but it comes from the Creator. And the reason that's important is that if freedom doesn't come from the government, then freedom, if freedom does come from the government, then the government can restrict freedom. But if freedom comes from God, then no authority on the earth has the right to restrict freedom. And it was the recognition of that principle that laid the foundation in the colonies in America for understanding the principle of real and true freedom that was eventually um, codified in our Constitution. So Paul lays down that principle of freedom of conscience in the first chapter of this discussion, in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, he is going to develop an application of this and an illustration to drive the point home to the Corinthians. The Corinthians would, would, would be tempted to say, well, why should we, as believers with knowledge, we have these legitimate rights, why should we give them up? Why should we restrict our legitimate rights just for these, these untaught, unlearned, ignorant baby believers? Why should we give up that which is ours? So Paul turns the table on them by using a personal illustration. And in this personal illustration, he's going to put the so-called strong Corinthians in the position of the weak believer, and he himself is placed in the position of the strong believer who has given up, who gave up, a legitimate right in order to not put a stumbling block in front of these weak Corinthian believers. And that lays down the principle that Paul is going to illustrate from his own life the principle of love, the law of love, and the law of personal sacrifice, that sometimes we should forego certain legitimate things simply because there are more important issues at stake, there are eternal issues at stake, and therefore because these eternal issues are more important, we should forego certain legitimate things at times. So Paul uses his own illustration of sacrifice, that he gave up a right to a full-time salary. Now, verses 1 through 15 are one section that deal with the law of personal sacrifice. But this undergirds the discussion from verse 16 on in terms of his application to, to the gospel ministry in certain ways. Now, we have to pay attention to the issues here 
because otherwise we fall in we can fall into a trap that I've seen some people fall into in the last part of this chapter and then in verse 19 we get into a section that is always misunderstood and taken out of context so we have to pay attention to some things and focus on some crucial interpretive issues the the um in this section Paul emphasizes all of the apostles had a right had a legitimate right to take a salary whenever they went anywhere. In other words, they had a right to be supported financially by the believers who were present in that area. Now, the problem today that we have, money always says something about spirituality. And the problem that we often run into today is Christians don't understand grace, and that is usually illustrated by their own giving. And I have never had this happen to me, but I have had... Uh, have been told of this happening and know of people where this has happened to them where they have gone, been invited to come to a church to teach and uh, the church has legitimately paid their expenses and then after they have come and and taught for uh, five or six hours and three or four sessions they've been given an honorarium of maybe $50 or $75. Now that shows a tremendous lack of appreciation. I've even known of some people in fact, Dr. Ryrie used to talk about the fact that he would, be, he would sometimes go to a conference where he had been told they would cover his expenses, plus give him an honorarium, and when he got there, they would say, well, you know, our finances just aren't what they, they should be, and we don't have the money for your finances. And he would just force them to pay him because that's what the obligation was. And it's amazing how many Christians think that somehow because you're involved in the Lord's work, that therefore you sh- money shouldn't even be an issue and uh, you, sh- you should live on some sort of shoestring budget and, and uh, live in some level of poverty. And they apply that to missions. You know, when our missionaries, back in the old days, they used to have what they call missionary barrels in churches. And I always thought that was a horrible idea because what would happen is when people got, got, done, got through with, it, with cl- their clothes, then they would take them instead of using them as hand-me-downs to somebody in the in the family. And maybe sometimes it was it was clothes that had gone through two or three different kids, and now the they didn't have any younger kids, so they would just take these clothes and they would go down and put them in the missionary barrel. And then these clothes would be sent to the missionaries on the field. So they would always get second-hand, third-hand stuff, and it was cheap stuff. Folks who are on the mission field should be given the very best because they are sacrificing so much and giving up so much to go live in a foreign land. We should treat these people with a tremendous amount of honor and respect. And the same is true for anyone who is in the ministry, anyone who is a pastor teacher, anyone who is an evangelist, because they have dedicated their life to serving the Lord, they, more than anyone else, should be given a tremendous amount of honor and respect for that, and that should be indicated in the way that they are financially remunerated, because it speaks of grace, it speaks of gratitude for the teaching of the Word of God, these eternal principles by which we live, and uh, unfortunately that is not true in far too many uh, churches in this country. Now Paul makes it principle clear and states it clearly in verse 14. We're going to, we've got down to 15 last week, but I want to go back and pick up on verse 14 before we go forward because of a couple of key statements that are made here. Paul summarizes 
his argument to this point by saying, even so, the Lord has commanded. Notice, this isn't an option. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now let's stop a minute because there are two things that we need to pay attention to in this verse and in this context or we are going to make some serious misinterpretation and then misapplication. Remember, the steps in Bible study, any kind of Bible study, first of all, you have to carefully observe the text. And in observation of the text, one of the observations is that you have uh, one word for preaching the gospel here. You have the word katangelo, or pre- translated preach here. And even though in verse 16 and following you have the phrase preach the gospel, you have a different Greek word. So you have to pay attention to these distinctions to see uh, what they indicate and how significant that is. So that's observation. Then you have interpretation. Interpretation answers the question, what did the writer intend to say? What happens with most people when they look at the Scriptures, they jump from interpretation to application. And that's what happens in too many sermons on Sunday morning, is they jump from interpretation to application. Now, there are principles of application here that relate to pastors, relate to evangelists, relate to missionaries, but the interpretation is related to the Apostle Paul and his apostolic ministry. And that's important to understand here. Paul is talking about the rights he had as an apostle. He's not talking about the rights of a pastor. He's not talking about the rights of an evangelist. He's not talking about the rights of a missionary. There's application there. But before we get to application, we better understand that Paul is talking about his personal rights and legitimate freedoms as an apostle. So that's the first part of context, the first item we have to pay close attention to, that Paul is talking about himself in terms of his op- the operation of his apostolic gift. The second thing that we have to pay attention to is what I alluded to already, and that is this phrase, preaching the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. You see, there is an important principle that is often made and frequently derived from this, this uh, section, the section that comes up from 16 and following, and that is the principle that if you're involved in an evangelistic meeting, you shouldn't be passing the plate because you don't want to confuse unbelievers with, with a money issue. You don't want them to get the idea that somehow they can buy their way into heaven, that somehow giving, is, giving has something to do with salvation or even the spiritual life. But that is not an issue that underlies this text. That is not an issue in this context at all. It was not an issue in the early church, and therefore it is an illegitimate application because it does not derive from a correct interpretation of this passage. Now, it's a true principle, but it doesn't come from this passage. And when you start teaching principles from passages that aren't based on the interpretation of that passage, well, you're no different from a liberal. So you can't just start cutting and pasting the Scripture any way you want to just because it sounds like a good principle. You have to stick with the text. So let me make a strong case here for what's happening here because, because this has some tremendous implications for the way we conduct certain kinds of, 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 uh, 
uh, policies related to uh, finances. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel. Now, this word for preach is the Greek verb kat angelo. Kat angelo. I'm going to put this up here on the overhead. In the Greek, it looks like this. Now, for those of you who have taken a little Greek, whenever you have this double gamma here, it's always transliterated like an NG. So it's K-A-T-A-N-G-E-L-L-O, katangelo. Notice this word A-N-G-E-L in the middle looks like angel. That's that idea of message. See, angelos is a messenger. And the verb is angelo, which has to do with uh, communicating a message. When it has the preposition kata prefixed to it, it intensifies the idea of the verb. And the verb katangelo means to announce something, to declare something, to declare a message. In some contexts, it might even carry the connotation of inculcating a message. This verb is used 18 times in the New Testament, and it's used about seven times in the book of Acts. Interestingly enough, the context in Acts mirrors this context. It's roughly the same time period of this context, so that gives us a very clear idea of, uh, of the meaning of this word. And in Acts 13.5, Acts 13.38, which is an important verse. Acts 16.17. Acts 17.3 and 23. And remember, Acts 18.8, I mean, Acts 18 is when Paul first went to Corinthians. In those passages, Acts 13.5, 13.38, 16.17, 17.3, and 23, in those passages, this word means to evangelize. To, primarily, it means to announce or proclaim the gospel, or it seems to suggest that from its usage in those particular verses. However, in the middle of that section, there's a verse that changes that concept. See, in Acts 13, 5 and 38, Paul is going to new areas, and he says, we're going there and we're going to proclaim the gospel. And that would indicate to us that this is a fresh area where there are no believers, and he's going to go there and witness. And so there would be the tendency to want to translate this witnessing. However, after his first missionary journey, when they had gone to Cyprus and then to Lystra and Iconium and Derby, Paul turns to Barnabas and he says, let's go back to all these places where we have proclaimed the gospel, katangelo. Now, they didn't just preach the gospel, did they? They didn't just witness. They taught post-salvation truth while they were there as well. So when Paul uses his phrase katangelo with the word, with the gospel, he is indicating much more than simple witnessing because after people were saved, they stayed around long enough to teach him some basics on the spiritual life. So the term preaching the gospel may have a narrow meaning of simply evangelizing, but in many cases it refers to the total context of the apostolic job. What was his job as an apostle? It was to go into an area to, to convert unbelievers to believers, to teach them the gospel, and then to teach them the basics of the spiritual life and to establish local congregations. 
And so Paul will sometimes summarize that whole job with this phrase, preaching the gospel. It summarized the entire mission. They were to preach the gospel, and they would then establish local churches. Now, the other thing we must also remember from an isagogical standpoint, that is, understanding the history at the time, is that this is in the infancy of the church. So that even if Paul were to return on their way back after they had gone through Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, and they're on their way back, and they go back to uh, one of the places they had already, already uh, established, where they'd already established a church, when they would go there and they would meet on a Sunday morning because this Christian thing was so new, they would more than likely have a church meeting on Sunday morning that unlike today where 95% to 100% of the people who are, who are there in the local congregation are already born-again believers who, uh, are, uh, who have been saved, they would be going back to churches where many, many times 50, 60, maybe even 70% of the people who were there on a Sunday morning were not believers. Now, that's an important to understand because when we start talking about money and taking up a collection, there's a tendency today to, to, to and, I, and I'm not knocking the principle of don't confuse the unbelievers with the money. But see, in the early church, there were always a lot of unbelievers in the congregation, and they did take up a collection. So let's not push this principle too far. You always want to be careful not to confuse the unbelievers. And when I take up a collection, especially if I'm pretty sure there's some unbelievers here, or excuse me, when I, we mention the offering, I try to emphasize at times that this is not for unbelievers. If you're a believer, then it's your responsibility. But if you're an unbeliever, the only thing that's expected of you is to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ as your Savior. So we have to remember the historical context. The literary context of chapter 9, Paul is talking about the function of his apostolic gift. Second, the phrase, the way the phrase is used, kat angelo, is used to describe the entirety of the apostolic ministry, which begins with witnessing and extends to planting a local church. Now, Paul makes the comment here in verse 14 that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So clearly the Lord indicated that those who are out there witnessing should also be supported by those who respond to that ministry. And that was made clear in Matthew chapter 10. Hold your place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, the context is the Lord commissioning the disciples and sending them out to announce the gospel, and he uses the same terminology in this chapter. He uses the terminology of katangelo. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 10, we have a list of the, the uh, 12 disciples. And then in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, 
Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is a dispensationally distinct mandate. This is not related to their later apostolic calling. At this point, they are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And he says, as you go, verse 7, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the gospel at that time. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. I want you to pay attention to that list. He says you're to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Based on Old Testament passages and rabbinical tradition, this was the activity that was expected of the Messiah. So they are giving signs that the Messiah is at hand. He says, then, freely you have received, freely give. See, this is the grace principle. Freely we receive the gospel. We receive salvation. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You can't buy it. You can't do anything to impress God with it. It is a free gift. It is undeserved merit. I mean, it's undeserved mercy. Unmerited kindness on the part of God. So in response to that is gratitude. We give back. The same principle, what governs the principle of of God's giving his son is it's not based on the behavior of the one you give it to, and it is generous. Verse 9, Jesus said, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. In other words, I'm going to send you out, and you're going to leave your wallet at home. Leave your money belt at home. Don't take anything with you. You're going to learn to trust God for the complete provision of your logistical needs, and that will be supplied by the people that you minister to. He says, uh, don't take any bag for your journey. Don't take two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves. Don't take an extra set of clothes. Just take what's on, the, on your back. For a worker is worthy of his food. In other words, he's saying, go out and witness, and those to whom you are witnessing are going to supply your needs, and you're going to trust in the Lord because ultimately it's the Lord who supplies your needs. And that's a principle for ministry, that they are to earn, as it were, their living through their ministry. They have a right to do that. Now, let's, uh, one thing I want to look at before, so we don't have to play hopscotch around the Bible, let's look at the beginning of the next chapter. Chapter 10 focuses on they're going out and they're coming back. And it's unfortunate that there's a break at chapter 11.1 because it continues to fit the same context. In verse 1 we read now of chapter 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in the cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, I don't want to get into why he asked that question. My point here is I want to look at what what Jesus said. Jesus answered them and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, notice the list. The blind see, the lame walk, leper cleanse, the deaf hear. It's very similar to the list we pointed out earlier. This is signs of the messianic presence, that the, the Messiah has come. But his last phrase, he says, and they, they have had the gospel preached to them. Now, the word for preach in 11.5 in 11, is a different word. 
We have Katangelo back in chapter 10 when he tells, the, tells them to go out and, and preach in verse, in verse 7. But we have another phrase. We have Uangelo in chapter 11, 4, E-U-A-N-G-E-L-L-O, from which we get our English word, evangelize. And this is the word in 11.4. So he uses both words in the similar context, which indicates that they are synonyms. They overlap with one another. So you can't come along and say, well, what Paul is saying in back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, has to do with the broader-based ministry. And then in verse 16, when he says, For if I preach the gospel and shifts to Angelo again, this is in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 as well, when he makes that shift at that point, that he is now talking about the more precise witnessing. And I'm going to document that a little later on from, from Acts as well. In Acts, you have Paul speaking in Acts chapter 13. And he begins to speak in about verse 6 or 7. And the entire chapter contains this gospel message of Paul's. And in that gospel message, he uses these two words synonymously with what he is doing. At one point, he is preaching the gospel, katangelo, and four verses later, he is uh, preaching the gospel, oiangelo. This shows that these words are roughly interchangeable in Paul's vocabulary. Now, this is a really important principle that, that, that helps us to understand the thrust of this particular chapter. Paul is making it clear that he understood the principle taught by the Lord in Matthew 10.10, that the, evangel- the, the apostles, the disciples, evangelists, pastors, and teachers have a right to be supported by those to whom the gospel ministry goes. They have a legitimate right to earn a living from the preaching of the gospel. Now, I'm going to go a step further because I want to, st- I want to state this in some extreme terms because in, in grace churches... Churches that emphasize grace giving, sometimes people get the idea, well, that means I don't have to give. And we, we emphasize grace giving, in, for example, in our tape ministry. We do not attach a charge for tapes. We emphasize that it's a grace ministry and that people are to support the ministry, and it is not that we are charging for the teaching of God's Word. And a subtle implication is that somehow we're better than those who do charge for tapes. Somehow we don't charge for books. We have Pastor Themes books out there, and if our ministry continues, uh, Dean Bible Ministries will have some, some booklets like that. I have one book that on spiritual warfare that's been published through the mainstream Christian uh, publishing media. And that book is sold because that is... That's legitimate, and that's proper, and that's the way I went. I imagine that over time I will have some books that are published through the major, uh, major Christian publishing houses because that will reach a, an audience 
that other books won't reach. Other books we will have, we're working on one right now on what is a spirituality or the biblical view of spirituality, and that book will not be published through a major Christian publishing house, but will be available on a grace basis. I have taken my uh, ma- uh, my doctoral dissertation that I wrote on, on a Greek grammar for people who don't know Greek, and I'm going to also be selling that. That's not the teaching of the Word of God. The principle that Paul lays down here is it's an individual decision whether you're going to charge or not charge. And I'm using that phrase, and incidentally, it is a Pauline phrase. Just look down at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, what's my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. Now, the context is that he is not going to stipulate a salary for his coming to an area. But he has already said that this is a legitimate right that all of the other apostles are exercising. In other words, don't get on your high horse that we believe in a grace ministry, so we're not going to charge for tapes, we're not going to charge for books, so somehow we are better than everybody else. Because the principle that Paul lays down here is that the person who teaches the Word of God has a right to make a living from it, and that the apostles were clearly going and using his very terminology, charging for the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, it doesn't matter whether you say, I'll come and speak at your church for a love offering, or I'll come and speak at your church if you pay me $1,500, or I'll come and speak at your church uh, for free. I mean, for um, uh, if, you, if, you put a precise, if you put a precise number on there, $1,500, whether you put just a love offering on there, either one of those two options, you're basically saying you're basically charging for the gospel. If you go for, for free, somehow, some way, somebody's taking care of you. But Paul is saying that neither of those three options, charging a specific salary, asking for a love offering, or not asking for anything and saying, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to come for free, they're all legitimate Each of those is legitimate. It is a personal decision how you want to conduct your ministry. And that is why our ministry is, uh, for Dean Bible Ministries and the Tate Ministry, the issue is going to be based on a grace giving. We're not going to charge for tapes. You wouldn't believe some of the pressure I get from some pastors to charge for tapes. I've had pastors come up to me at some conferences and say, Robbie, if you would charge 4 or $5 a tape like everybody else, see, there's a little bit of conviction going on here because I don't charge for tape. If you charge five, and some of these guys charge 6 or $7 for tapes. If you charge 5 or $6 for tapes, you can make a lot of money. What do you have against making money? And see, the principle is I'm not there for that purpose of making money. We need to take in money. There's a, We need to have donations. We need to have have a contributions, otherwise the tape ministry can't operate. We need to pay personnel. We need to pay for uh, we need to pay for equipment. We need to pay for the internet. We have all kinds of costs that are associated with that that go far beyond a simple three or four or five dollar charge per tape. Uh, there's there's you know postage, all kinds of other things that are involved in that. But I am not going to make money an issue in terms of the distribution of tapes and the distribution of some types of literature. 
Other types of literature will go through mainstream publishing houses because, as I said earlier, that reaches a different audience. So it has to do with personal decisions and goals, and that's exactly what Paul is stating in this passage. From verse 15 on, we're going to get a glimpse into Paul's Paul as a person. This is a deeply personal decision for Paul because of the way Paul was saved. This is where he goes in verse 15. He says, but I have used none of these things. Now, what does he mean by these things? By these things, he means I haven't exercised my right to take a wife, to bring my wife along, to, or to have you support me. That's the, These things goes back to, to verse where he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not? Ha- that would be at the, at the uh, uh, expense of the church. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife to be supported by the congregation, as do all the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Peter or Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I, he says? See, that this, these are the, these things. He says, but I have used none of these things. I have not exercised my legitimate rights. Let's paraphrase it that way. Paul says, but I have not exercised any of my legitimate rights, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. In other words, now wait a minute. Just because I've emphasized this and that I have a legitimate right to this, but I've never talked to you about it, don't go getting the idea that I'm trying to manipulate you into, into sending me money now. That's not why I'm writing this. You see, it's important for pastors to teach on money, on finances, on giving, and on grace giving, and, and I hate doing it. One subject I just, I'm uncomfortable with personally, I don't like to talk about, is grace giving, but it's a responsibility of a pastor teacher to teach on it because every believer needs to understand their responsibilities in relationship to supporting the Lord's work and to supporting the local church and supporting missions. But Paul is saying, I don't do it to get you to give more to me. I'm not manipulating you. And let me add that that's not my motivation either. My motivation is to make sure you understand what the biblical principles are and your giving is between you and the Lord. I make a real effort to never know anything about who gives or who doesn't give. I think when pastors know who gives and who doesn't give, I don't care how objective they try to be, somehow, even in the most subtle way, it will influence them. Now, Paul makes this statement, I have used none of these things. I haven't exercised any of my legitimate rights, nor am I writing these things to manipulate you into finally supporting me. And at this point, there is a break in the Greek text. If you go through this, I'm not going to take the time to explain the technicalities of it, but there is a grammatical break here, a grammatical break that just comes across as being extremely odd, and it is a figure of speech called uh, pasiopesis. Let me write that on the board because I'm sure you never ran across that in any course you took in school. Apasiopesis. This is a, taken from a, 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 ultimately probably a Greek word. A-P-O-S-I-O-P-E-S-I-S. Apasiopesis. And this is a figure of speech where 
which occurs when you're talking about one subject and you're beginning to get rather excited and emotional and intense about it, and suddenly you just stop talking about what you've been talking about and you break in and you go in a completely different direction. You just insert something else because you realize because it's so so personal and so intense that there's an emotional break here, and you shift your subject. You break off one sentence to jump into another, and it is always shows intense emotion. And what this reveals is that Paul is very intense at this point because we're going to get into something that is very personal to him in terms of his own personal policy. But no matter how personal it is, no matter how strong Paul feels about it for his own ministry, he is not condemning or judging anybody else for doing it differently. Now, in verse 16 through 18, he shows how clearly he's thought through these issues. He says in verse 16, For I preach the gospel. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, what is Paul getting at here? This is a difficult section and is often misunderstood. First of all, let's note that Paul shifts his verb to uangelizo here, which is where we get our word evangelism. Be careful here, as I said earlier, he's not changing the subject. Uangelizo and katangelo are used synonymously. For example, Acts 13, 32, and 38, where Paul is addressing the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, he uses these two words, Uangelizo in verse 32 and katangelo in verse 38 as synonyms. Therefore, our conclusion is that these words are not used technically of simple evangelism, but both words are used in, in this context as a summary term for the apostolic role of witnessing to church planting. It's, some, it's a summary term for the apostolic responsibility to preach the gospel and all that it entails, which means not simply the good news that Christ died on the cross for your sins and you can have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, but it goes on to include post-salvation truth, how to live the Christian life. Remember, Jesus said, I came not only to give life, but to give it abundantly. So the apostles taught not simply the gospel, but also the spiritual life. So all is included here in this terminology. Paul uses a third-class condition. If is a third-class condition, which indicates uh, it could be one way or it could be another way. The condition is uncertain of fulfillment. Remember, there are three different conditions, ways to express conditions. A condition is an if clause. Three different ways to express a condition in Greek. This is the broadest category. This is the one we most often think of when we say if. Uh, If it rains tomorrow, maybe it will, maybe it won't. So Paul says, if I preach the gospel, maybe I will do it, maybe I won't do it. If I do it, I have nothing to boast of. In other words, I can't be, he's going to argue, in fact, what we'll get to at the end of the chapter next time is a tremendous illustration of the Christian life and running, living the Christian life for rewards. And what Paul is saying here, if I preach the gospel, I, I have, maybe I don't preach the gospel, but if I do, I can't boast about it. I can't even be rewarded for fulfilling my apostolic ministry because, he says, for, 
explanation, gar, for I am under compulsion. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means is that I don't have a choice. I'm under compulsion. In the Greek, it's the, the word anenke. looks like this, ananke, A-N-A-N-K, and then an eta, A-N-A-N-K-E, ananke. And this is a term indicating that he has no choice, that he is under a mandatory role, he is under compulsion, it is a necessity for him to preach the gospel. Now this is how he interjects in this thing. Excuse me, I lost a section of verse 15 on that apostiopesis. Skipped ahead. I know it's going to make it. Verse 15, he, has this, he, he makes the first thing, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. And then he interjects. He says, For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. He said, I don't want, I have a privilege here of preaching the gospel. And give me the right not to charge for it. That's what he's saying. He said, said and, and what he's going to say with this is that when Jesus Christ called me and commissioned me on the road to Damascus, this was, he said, this, this is such a powerful compulsion. I did not have a choice about being an apostle. That was a sovereign decision of Jesus Christ. And I really don't have a choice. I Technically, maybe I do. But what he is saying in verse 16 is if I don't, woe is me. I'm going to come under extreme divine discipline. What he, His whole argument from the second half of 15 on is th- this, this commissioning that was given me in Acts chapter 9 when I was saved on the Damascus Road and commissioned to be an apostle is so overwhelming that I can't do anything other than to do it. So I can't be rewarded for it. Now, what I want to do is I want to do something to indicate that this is my grace response to God. So rather than go around and talk about money, what I had chosen to do, because I can't do anything other than preach the gospel, is that I'm not going to take any money for it, or I'm not going to ask for any money. He does receive money in Philippians, in Philippi and in other places. He clearly receives money, but he's not going to ask for it. That's his decision. He says, it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. See, his boasting is in the cross of Christ. We saw that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that his boasting is in, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. His ground for boasting is in the cross. I will glory in nothing other than the cross, he says. So don't give me an opportunity to do something freely for the Lord because of what he did for me at salvation. I don't have any other choice but to preach the gospel. So I want to do something that is rewardable. I can't be rewarded for preaching the gospel. That is, he felt that way. That was unique in his ministry because of the background of his salvation. This is why we bring in the intensity here of Paul's feeling. This is why he, he has this, uses this break in verse... Um, in, in verse 15, the, the Opasio pieces break is because he is, he is shifting gears. This is so personal for him because of the way in which he was saved. See, Paul, was, Paul always viewed himself as the chief of sinners. Paul never got away from the fact that he had committed maybe hundreds of murders of Christians before he was saved. 
he never forgot that. Now, I'm not saying that he felt guilty about it or was on a guilt trip. He never forgot it because he realized that he was the chief of sinners and that that reminded him of how extensive the grace of God was. See, for him, his failures, his sins, his heinous crimes before salvation didn't drive him into guilt because he knew all of his sins were paid for. But it drove him to a greater appreciation of the depths of the grace of God, that God called him the chief of sinners to be the chief apostle. And so being the chief apostle, he, he, is, he is aware of the fact that this obligation has been laid upon him and he can do nothing else other than preach the gospel. So since he cannot be rewarded for that, he will, he will choose to do so without ever mentioning money. Now that's Paul's decision. But he doesn't criticize the other apostles for mentioning money. They do mention money. They, ha- they are all, he says, they're all supported. They're wives. They take their families with them. The local churches support them. They charge. He's not condemning that. Verse 15, it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void by starting to send him money, money, as if they thought he was asking for money and starting to dun him for money. Now, verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, because this wasn't a choice. I'm under compulsion. This was laid upon me as an apostle. In one sense, he knows he has a volitional choice, because then he says, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But what happened on the Damascus Road is so overwhelming. The obligation of an apostle is so overwhelming. It's as if he didn't have a choice. He knows he really, he, if, if I don't preach the gospel, God's going to just lower the boom on me, so I really don't have a choice. That's what he's saying. Even though I do have a choice, I'm not, I'm not even going to consider that option, so in effect I don't have a choice. And then he explains it further in verse 17. Here he says, For if I do this voluntarily, this is a first-class condition. For, for if, and we're going to assume this is true. This is how he uses a first-class condition. It's, sometimes it means if and it's true. Other times it's used as a debater's technique or to simply state a proposition as, uh, as true. He says, if I do this voluntarily. Now, he just said I'm under compulsion. So he recognizes he's, he doesn't have a choice, so he's not saying, I do this voluntarily. He says, if I were to do this voluntarily, then I would have a reward. That's the thrust of verse 17. But if against my will, and then what we expect to read, if against my will, I don't have a reward. You know, if I did this, but I really didn't want to, and I grumbled and griped about it the whole time, and I had a bad attitude about it, then... I wouldn't have a reward. And that's the implication there. He doesn't say it. But what his conclusion is, is I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now, this verse makes it sound like he's saying this. If I do this willingly, then I have a reward. But if against my will, then I have no reward. But that's not the contrast. What he is saying is if I had an option. Because the previous verse, he just said, I really don't have an option. I'm under compulsion. Here he says, if I had an option and I chose to preach, then I would have a reward. But I didn't have an option. I was compelled to preach the gospel. I had a responsibility, a stewardship entrusted to me. God gave me this, and so I really don't have 
an option. Paul's attitude is based upon what happened to him when he was saved. His own personal experience at salvation was so intense. His recognition of how lost he was is so overpowering. His appreciation for the extremities of God's grace is so great that Paul has made a personal decision in light of his experience to not ask for money when he goes to churches. Now, we we saw last week in Philippians chapter 4 that he accepted money. He accepted the gifts from the Philippians. He In, in other churches, he was supported. He didn't uh, work at making tents everywhere he went. So that shows us again that this is something that is is a flexible application. So let's summarize. Paul's argument is that since I really don't have a choice in being an apostle and carrying out an apostolic ministry, there's no reward in that. However, I do want to apply some personal volition here in a way that is rewardable. So my way of doing this is that I don't ever ask for a salary, and I have every right to do that. So he has every right to ask for a salary, but he doesn't. Now, he has a right not to not to ask for a salary, and unfortunately what happens is the Corinthians think that, that he's being weak in doing that. So we come to verse 18. He says, What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See, he's saying, look, I have every right to charge, but I'm not going to charge. The other apostles have a right to charge, and they charge, and that's okay for them. But I've made a personal decision. He's showing them that this is a gray area. This is just as much a gray area as uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's just as much a gray area of whether you want to drink alcohol, go to movies, smoke cigarettes, cigars, whatever it is. It's just as much an area for you to make a personal decision as to how you're going to utilize your freedom as any other area. So Paul says that I am chosen in my ministry not to, not to, emphasize, not to emphasize money. Now, over in Philippians, you don't have to turn there. I just want to read a couple of verses to you. In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I rejoice, this is verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Their care for him is financial. He's in prison at this time. It says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The state I am is where I have plenty of money and when I don't have any money. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be poor and I know how to be wealthy. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things. I can do all things in context means I can handle any financial situation through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. And then in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the the fruit that abounds to your account. And then in verse 19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's talking about 
finances, that God ultimately is the one who supplies the resources. That's the principle we operate on at Preston City Bible Church. That's the principle we're operating on with Dean Bible Ministries is the grace principle that God is the one who supplies the resources and God is the one who supplies the finances. Too often Christian organizations get into a trap where they're always asking people for money, they're dunning people for money, they're always sending out prayer letters requesting money, and we're not going to do that. Money is not to be the issue. The issue is positive volition and people who want the truth. Now, in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, For though I am free from all men, see, by not accepting money, he is saying, I am free in this. I have, but I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. In other words, I have put my, myself in a position of working, day in and day out, like a slave in a tent-making ministry, in order that I may have more converts in Corinth. See, the decision Paul made when he came to Corinth, initially he ran into... Um, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila there, and they were also tent makers. And he went into business with them, and they were making tents. And that's how he supported himself for the year and a half to two years that he was in Corinth. He never asked for money because Paul, in his experience and wisdom, discerned that the problem with the Corinthians was if he started asking them for money, then they would think that he owed them something. So Paul realized that if he never mentioned money and didn't seek a salary from them, he would be more effective in his ministry than if he did. So he's making a decision, but that wasn't a decision that was true everywhere he went. And this is an important principle to understand in terms of dealing with some of these areas, some of these gray areas, the doubtful things where, where the Bible doesn't address is Sometimes it's okay to do some things, and in other contexts and situations and with other people, it's not okay. You have to exercise some wisdom and some discernment, which demands flexibility. And the problem is that most Christians don't understand flexibility. That's part of maturity. And that happens to people who operate on grace as well as people who are legalistic. We often think legalists aren't flexible. But I've run into people who are, who are grace-oriented, and they're not flexible towards somebody who charges for their tapes. See, they think that violates grace. It doesn't violate anything in the Scripture. It's a gray area. But you have to be flexible. You have to say, well, there's, there's certain situations and certain occasions where you can operate one way in certain situations and certain occasions where it's legitimate to operate in another way. And, and that's an individual decision. Now, the problem we run into in the next few verses, and we're going to hit them very quickly, is that these verses are often taken to mean, well, I can just compromise, be anything to anybody at any time. And that's not what they're saying. The second problem is that often today these verses are ripped out of context and used to legitimize compromise with culture. And this happens most egregiously in the church growth movement because they think, well, our whole culture operates on advertising, operates on commercialism, operates on meeting the need of the consumer, that it's okay to use that model when it comes to the church. So you treat churchgoers as consumers, and you market the church. And let me tell you, any idiot, any unsaved person, any carnal pastor, any pastor who doesn't know up from down about the Bible, but is a good salesman, 
can go out and build a church of three, four, five, six thousand people overnight, but it has nothing to do with God. I don't care how much he uses the scripture. I don't care how much he talks about the Bible. If he's using salesmanship techniques and basing that on, on what the culture does, He's doing it, God's not doing it, and the Scripture says those who build a house, unless the Lord builds it, they labor in vain. You have to remember that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And building a church using human viewpoint, salesmanship, marketing techniques is wrong. God is not glorified. Man is glorified. There is no good that comes of it. And people and pastors who do that are in carnality, and they are not doing the Lord's work. I don't care if people do get saved. It is not because of what they do. It is despite what they do. See, God honors His Word. And there are a lot of churches that have grown and apparently are blessed simply because God's Word is taught. The pastor is carnal, and the congregation is operating on wrong methodology, but God still honors his word, but they think that somehow it has to do with their methodology, and they're completely wrong. Now, in this next verse, we see the principle, For though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all. And then in verse 20, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now, does that sound like Paul's just going to be wishy-washy? I'm going to be all things to all people. And some people take it that way. Some people think that that you just uh, put on a different mask and you have 25 different masks, and depending on who you're with, you operate that way, and you just change everything willy-nilly in order to get people saved. That is not what Paul is saying. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 5.22... Jesus says that it's wrong to call somebody a fool. He says, if anyone says to his brother, Raka, we're in the middle of the verse, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is in the context of the, of the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and he is uh, talking about personal relationships. But then in Matthew 23:17, he turns around and uses the same vocabulary to talk about the Pharisees. He calls them fools. Now, what's the difference? The issue in Matthew 23 is doctrine. The issue in Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 was a personal conflict. So doctrine becomes an issue. Paul illustrates this in Acts 16, where Paul wanted this man, that is Timothy, to go with him after Timothy was saved. And he was going mostly to Jews, so he knew that the fact that Timothy had a Greek father and had never been circumcised, that circumcision would be a problem. So he had Timothy circumcised. He's a, this is the illustration of verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. You know, I wanted to be going to the Jews. I didn't want them to have a problem, so I had Timothy circumcised. But in Galatians 2, he says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He makes it an issue with Titus. Why? Because in the context of what was happening in Galatians 2, circumcision was being linked as something necessary for salvation. Now it's become a doctrinal issue. In, in, in Acts 16, it was a cultural issue. And so the principle that Paul is indicating here is don't make non-issues issues. You have to learn to be sensitive to the real issues. Money's not an issue. Personal opinions are not an issue. When you're evangelizing or witnessing to somebody, don't make that mistake. Don't make their political opinions an issue. Don't get 
somebody running you down some rabbit trail on some doctrine that is too difficult or impossible for them to understand as an unbeliever. Remember, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Don't make their, their background, their personal habits, their sins an issue. Stick to the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And we have to be flexible. We have to learn to be flexible in areas that are doubtful. Don't try to impose one way of doing everything on everybody. But but don't compromise doctrine. That's what Paul is saying. He didn't compromise doctrine, but he is going to he's not going to let cultural issues be an issue. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. But to those who are under the law, that is Gentile proselytes, I acted as if I was under the law. I respected their their opinions. I didn't want those opinions to be an issue. That I might win those who are under the law. And then verse 21, to those who are without law, that is Gentiles, outside the Mosaic law, as without law. In other words, Paul would say, when I was with the Jews, I wasn't going to eat pork. But when I went over here and I was with Gentiles, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't turn my nose up at pork. I would eat all the pork I wanted. But then the next day, if I went to some Gentile proselytes, I wouldn't eat pork. In other words, I took into account who the audience was and what their background was, and I wasn't going to let non-issues become an issue or a distraction in communicating the gospel. Then we come to verse 22. To the weak I became weak. Now we're back to our original discussion. How do you handle the weaker brother? To the weaker brother I became weak that I might win the weak. You see, the issue is eternal state of the uh, of saved or unsaved i'm going to subordinate all my decisions in life to whether or not it helps me communicate the gospel or whether it becomes a distraction that becomes the bottom line not whether i have a legitimate right to it or not but whether or not it becomes a distraction to my ministry because the most important thing is that i should be able to win people to the lord jesus christ I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. We have to keep our focus on the main objective. Then verse 23, Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So he keeps his focus on the main thing. Now next time we'll come back and look at the doctrine of rewards in the, and how that relates to this in the concluding uh, part of the chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the clarity of the issues here. We pray that you would help us to understand them, realize that there are many areas in life when we are to be flexible, when uh, people can make different choices. They may not be our own personal choices, but they are nevertheless still legitimate choices, and they are between each individual and the Lord. The principle that governs everything is grace, and the issue is how it relates to our own ministry, whether or not it becomes a distraction in our ministry. We cannot make those decisions in terms of other people. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make the gospel issue clear to them, that they would realize that all they need to do to be saved is to trust in Christ as their Savior. The issue has nothing to do with money, 
has nothing to do with church involvement, church attendance, doing well, moral reformation, or any other factor. It only has to do with accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Right now, right where you sit, you can make that decision, and that will secure your eternal destiny. If the Scripture says if you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you have eternal life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.